Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hanson. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. I hope that he feels well-prepared to have this conversation with me. He's not concerned about whether or not he's qualified for it. And Dad, how are you doing today? <laughs> That's a setup for the topic, Trixie. <laughs> very clever. <laughs> yes, I'm doing fine, and I'm a little revved up. Because of other mm, things. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I am ready to do battle. I am ready to get into it. Well, that's perfect because today we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So that's what yeah. I was alluding to in my introduction there. And imposter syndrome is a pretty normal experience that people have where they doubt their capability, maybe they doubt their worth, and it tends to show up in particular kinds of settings for people, uh, maybe where they feel like they're going to be tested or quizzed on something regularly. And before we were starting, Dad, you started to get into a riff, and I actually paused you, and I was like, save it for when, for her when we've got the recording <laughs> turned on, buddy, about your concerns about syndrome creep and other kinds of things like that. So I was wondering if you could both explain imposter syndrome and talk about what you were about to talk about. I was kind of acknowledging to you this funny divide inside myself in that on the one hand, as you know, I'm extremely adventuresome. On the other hand, when it comes to psychology and other areas, I tend to be a little tilted conservatively about what we could call construct creep. Like, for example, the original definitions and understandings of mindfulness in early Buddhism as simply sustained present moment awareness as a kind of neutral and important capability that can be directed internally and externally, that notion has gotten really expanded to the point that people will say things like, well, mindfulness encompasses the whole of the of the path. And, huh. So in psychology, especially when we're talking about something that's fairly fuzzy, when you think about things like secure attachment or mindfulness or executive function or learned helplessness or uh, imposter syndrome or depression, these constructs are really fuzzy and therefore precisely because they're fuzzy and precisely because there are a lot of individual differences around them, it's really important to be clear about stuff. In other words, the weirder, the fuzzier, the more complicated things are, the more you need to kind of buckle down. And so I'm just leery of the ways in which, for example, in terms of the application of uh, models of psychopathology, we've seen a real creep around being on the spectrum. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. now everybody's on the spectrum, somewhere on the spectrum, and whatever happened to a clear diagnosis of Asperger's, say, or autism, or bipolar? I saw this as as well with bipolar. Suddenly now everybody's bipolar. Well, wait a second here. So I, I guess I'm, I, I feel like I'm that cranky guy, you know, hey, kid, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's, I, I, for starters, I mean, obviously, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a professional in the field who's yeah. doing this kind of diagnostic process with people. I can only speak to what I've seen in, in my own life or talked with friends about or just as an observer to the field through working with you about 10-ish years now in different kinds of ways. Oh, I, I think you've been observing the field since you were born one way or another. <laughs> That's that's fair enough. Fair enough. You've been observing the evolution of the field and the evolution of your father in some ways too. Yeah. Now that 
that is true right there. But I just want to be like a little diffident about my view here. Yeah. But it feels like there is this tension that you're speaking to between our desire to capture people's experience. Like you made a reference to being on the spectrum. We're sure maybe somebody doesn't hit the qualifications for like diagnosable autism, but they have certain sets of experiences that are like they're not neurotypical experiences, mm-hmm. whatever they are. Yeah. And so we want to we want to give that person a feeling of inclusion. We want to validate sure. their experience of the world. And, and yep. we want to acknowledge, yeah, you're, you're not in the middle 70% of this particular distribution. And maybe you're not far enough to the wings to, to hit the qualifications for this thing. But hey, I still want to like give you the handshake and the pat on the back that yes, you are experiencing something legitimate. Now, so that's extremely important. I'm really yeah. appreciating mm-hmm. also your wisdom and just bringing it up. I hadn't thought oh, about you. that. You know, we're talking about the, you know, the benefits of inclusivity and yeah, I, I liked the uh, notion a while, some years ago of neurotic styles, that classic book by Shapiro or the notion of shadow syndromes where people are kind of close to it or have they, they have a mild version of that. So I'm with you there. I'm with you there. So maybe we need both. We just need yeah. There's kind of, yeah. there's just a tension there between yeah. wanting to have a clearly defined thing yeah. and also wanting to appreciate, to your point, the inherent kind of inherent fuzziness in everything that we're talking about here and that we often talk about on the podcast. And that I think provides a really nice transition into imposter syndrome because it, it's sort of a perfect example of this, where it's this phrase that has appeared in people's consciousness as a kind of problem that people have, but it's absolutely not a diagnosable condition, to be clear. This is not something that's like in the DSM next to borderline and bipolar and and ADHD and all of the various things. It's just a description of a kind of experience that a person might have. So I just want to be really clear about that before we get started. Your uh, psychiatrist is not going to diagnose you with imposter syndrome, but your therapist might say something to you like, oh, it feels like, you know, maybe you feel like an imposter sometimes. Yeah, I am also, you know, cranky, cranky dad, take two, Uh, a little leery of the, I don't know what to call it, the self-interest involved in making up terms or categories that seem special and have the aura of science for careerist kind of purposes. And syndrome this, syndrome that, the Peter Pan syndrome, the Cinderella complex. You know, as soon as you tag that word syndrome or complex to it, the epigenetics of the Cinderella syndrome. I mean, suddenly it sounds like you know what you're talking about and you can sell books, but is there really a there there? So for me, it's almost at a meta level ironic that I wonder if there's a kind of imposturing around people who talk about imposter syndrome and, and other kinds of things. Is there a there there? Well, I think that the experiences are real. Whether or not they hit the the criteria for the usage of that kind of language, I, I think is very much an open question that you're that you're pointing to here. Yeah, you're instantly medicalizing something when you talk about syndromes, complexes, if you drop in any kind of brain language on it. And and the other thing, my third cranky. Wow, we're just we're starting with some serious dad cranky here. I thought we were we were having an imposter syndrome conversation and we're really having just like a get off my lawn adventure over here. Well, one of the <laughs> one of the antidotes to imposture is authenticity, for better or mm, worse, right? Mm. And so I'm authentic. Here's my third crank. Old wine and new bottles. Sure. 
for all kinds of purposes, including careerist purposes and also in a larger media context. The the gaping maw of the worldwide media machine that is like a beast. The content it's, beast, yeah. It's you like one of those beast. ancient deities figures that needed to be continually propitiated, you know, needed to have continually offerings tossed into the gaping fiery maw. Yeah, I, I just have an image of all of us dancing around the icons for the various apps, you know. Yeah, and the various outlets, the New York Times this, CNN that, clickbait, so forth. And one of the best ways to get to bait the click is to come up with a new shiny object. Yeah. But very often that new shiny object is a new bottle with a fancy ribbon on it that holds, you know, really familiar wine. And maybe there's a 1% to 2% value add of the little spin or the little droplet of curry powder in the new wine, in the old wine, but it's kind of imposters. I think to myself, what's different here about feelings of inadequacy or self-doubt or self excessive self-criticism or perfectionism and falling short or cultural forces that invalidate the worth of people systemically. Da, 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 da. I mean, this is old wine. Well, Dad, you've, you've really cued me up here. I wasn't really planning on going in this order, <laughs> but we might as well talk a little bit about the context of a phrase like imposter syndrome, because you've just totally taken me there. So where this phrase actually came from, I don't know if you know this or not, Dad, but I did a little bit of digging, and I could be off about some of this, but I think I've got the general sketch of it is that the the phrase started to be used more and was initially applied to predominantly women in the workplace. So when there was a movement of an increasing movement of women into corporate America and corporate kinds of situations, you started to see the phrase imposter syndrome come up more frequently to describe the experiences that they were having. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that People often feel like an imposter because they are made to feel like an imposter by exactly. other people. Yeah. But to your point, the framing of a syndrome yeah. creates a sense of personal fault and responsibility. Exactly right. You have this condition. The locus of the pathology. Yes, yes. It's placed on the individual as opposed to the broader environment that they are yeah. finding themselves in. And that distinction is really, really critical. When I was doing some research for this episode, I found this particular article that I want to point people to called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome, which was published in the Harvard Business Review. And it explores a lot of this kind of stuff, right? A lot of the whole notion of imposter syndrome takes place in a broader context where individual achievement is placed as essentially more important than enjoyment or well-being, right? Like we have all of this pressure on us to perform at a consistently high level, some would say an unachievably high level over an unachievably long stretch of time, and we're exposed to like constant competition and comparison around it. So there's this natural movement that we have to compare the whole of our experience, everything that we go through inside of ourselves, including, like you were saying earlier, really normal periods of time where we experience like lack of self-worth or self-doubt or doubt about our capability, whatever, to the highlight reel of other people's experiences. So let's start with a if you want to take it seriously as a construct, kind of a definition here of what we're talking about when we say imposter syndrome, which I think that as you were leading into, Dad, is is a description of some pretty normal experiences of questions about your capability. And what kind of distinguishes imposter syndrome is that it's despite evidence that you actually are a very capable person. Well, as a bit of a background, I think about Eric Erickson's 
stages of development all the way through. And, you know, these are frameworks that you can kind of definitely take with a grain of salt. You don't want to over-incorporate into them, but there's some very interesting things about it. So he, as people may know, brilliant uh, psychiatrist and therapist, functioning in a psychoanalytic frame in which there is a lot of focus in early Freudianism, certainly, on very early childhood experiences. Erickson talked about this first stage as a tension, essentially, between trust and shame, and trust in the world, and shame being that something that should be hidden is exposed, very often related to early toilet training in children. Oh, I see where you're going here, Dad. I think this is really clever. This is good, yeah. Okay, long lead up to my pitch. Yeah, yeah, no, Sorry. I like this. Like a wind-up here. Anyway, it's the sense of being exposed. We're afraid of exposure. And then we're afraid of a shaming attack that would follow an exposure. And I think there is something about that uh, that's really visceral and primal and wrenching and important to get at. You know, that does really speak to this fear that I don't belong here, which is also really very primal, the sense that I don't belong. Because, of course, belonging was absolutely central to survival in hunter-gatherer bands. So we're getting it two very visceral underlying charged dynamics. One, the sense of exposure. The fear of being found out. Yeah. yeah, the Wizard of Oz is really a fool behind a curtain with a loud voice, you know, that kind of thing. And then being cast out, being exiled, because you don't belong here. Yeah, I think that it, it gets to a separate but related conversation around how much is enough. Like, when do we get to feel like we are truly qualified? When do we get to feel like we are capable inside of a space? Imposter syndrome and other, other feelings around self-esteem are often based on essentially a myth that if we just accomplish enough, we won't feel this way anymore. But that's, that's a lie. We're always capable of feeling this way if this way is being like inadequate, unworthy, whatever. The goalposts always get pushed back. And so the truth that gets revealed is that it's about our experience of ourself with ourself, much more so than it's about like the search for external validation. There's something kind of tugging at me here, which is on the one hand, we have external forces to be sure. But then there's this very interesting internal process that I've just I've been wondering about more and more, and I wonder what your take is for us, which is like a fearful habit of inside your own mind, not letting it land that you're good enough. And more deeply, not letting it land when enough is actually enough to complete cycle on it and experience appropriate relief and reassurance, confidence going forward. And I've just known people who are really attached to that cycle. And I think about its functional purpose, like why would people be attached to it? And I suspect it's deeply fear-based in that there's a fear that if I get off that hamster wheel, then I'll make a catastrophic error, which will then expose me to shaming attack and exile. And maybe at a deep level, it's for people to really work with what you and I talk about, the risk of that dreaded experience, mm, mm-hmm. and to do multiple carefully controlled experiments in which you do a little, small, safe test of 
the theory that there will be a terrible thing that will happen. And then when it goes okay, take a breath and realize that it actually is okay to repeatedly let it sink in when you were competent, you were successful, you did get the job done, or you made a little boo-boo and it was not a big deal and people kept on going. What do you think about all that, kind of at the deep level? I think it's really interesting, and I think you're you're speaking to something that I wanted to have in this episode, which is a little outline of the normal structure of imposter syndrome, because you're asking an important question, which is, wait, why why isn't being accomplished enough to feel accomplished? And yeah. that's something that's been coming up in my life a lot recently in conversations with people, like the difference between being successful and feeling successful, or mm-hmm. the difference between being an objectively appealing person, like for a partner, perspectively, versus feeling like an appealing person for a partner. And that gap between being and feeling, man, that is the crux of so much, right? And so like, why does that happen over and over again? And I I wish I had a perfect answer to that question, but maybe we can see something in like the typical structure of this. So do you mind if I kind of outline this real quick? Oh, no, I really love it. Awesome. So imposter syndrome can kind of operate at a low grade in the background all the time. Uh, People who have pernicious feelings of a lack of self-worth or low self-esteem, but acute bouts of it, like when we really feel it, are often cued by something. And here's the kind of typical imposter cycle that people will have. Step one, you have a cue. You're assigned a new project. You need to perform some kind of new task. Somebody asks you to do a thing. Your work report is due in two weeks. Step two intense emotion, anxiety, your coping patterns are triggered, you fear that you're going to be found out, leading to some combination of procrastination for some people or extreme over-preparation for other people. Now, step three, the moment arrives, the thing needs to happen, and your anxiety intensifies right up until the moment of project completion. And then there is typically an experience of momentary relief. Some people will refer to this as feeling like they've received a stay of execution, as opposed to this genuine sense of accomplishment that maybe you're speaking to here, Dad. I wonder if the difference between those two things is a big part of the reason that the cycle tends to perpetuate, because step four, we get to rationalization. So you passed the test, you performed the task, and so you must be good enough at this thing, right? Well, no, because now we're in the rationalization phase. You just got lucky. Somebody else would have found it so much easier than you did, which just proves how unqualified you were. Or maybe you only survived because you did so much work and you only barely survived, so next time you need to do even more work if you want to be sure that you're going to survive. And this just leads to an increase in anxiety. So your accomplishment, rather than making you feel better, in a weird way actually makes you feel worse because you've just increased the stakes on the next time that you need to accomplish a task like this. Or maybe, oh God, you'll be given something even more difficult to accomplish in the future. And that's the typical cycle that people go through with these experiences. You can just imagine it almost like an an escalator. Each accomplishment then exposes you to even greater risks the next time because, of course, people will expect it from you. And I think that's a key part of the trap of this whole thing. 
which gets to what you were asking earlier, which I now want to kind of ask you about. Why do people get trapped in these cycles? You know, what do you think is going on in that pattern where there's a place for intervention? Where does a, a more healthy pattern, how could one be established inside of that structure? Is there a moment that you see in that list where you go like, okay, here's where I can intervene now? I honestly think there's just a lot of depth in this territory. So I'm thinking on the fly here. I think on the one hand, there's an inherent discomfort in feeling like you don't belong or that you're on probation in your belonging. I look back on my own background. I grew up in a family that both of my parents basically came from working class poverty. My parents were both intelligent and and knowledgeable about the world, but there really wasn't a lot of polish. I went to a very mediocre public high school. And then when I thought later on in life, as I started moving into professional circles, I would encounter people who had gone to all the right schools. There were generations of culture in their family. They had gone on to the Ivy League schools. and, And here we were together. And the truth was, I didn't really belong. Uh, I was an outsider. And that's a very mild version in a context of a lot of privilege and advantage. Alongside, though, that first dart can or cannot be a lot of second darts that we throw ourselves. And that's where it gets really interesting to me. Because the truth is, in many situations, we are kind of an outsider. In many situations, there is a kind of uphill gradient or current we're swimming against every day to prove ourselves. For me, then the key question becomes, how do we be about that, right? Do we be about that in a way that's extremely other-directed? Or do we say to ourselves, you know, my standards and also my best odd strategy for not being exiled and my best odd strategy for getting the job done my standards need to be more interdirected and focused around things like, am I trying hard? Am I showing up? Am I learning from mistakes? Am I managing my reactivities in a workplace environment? Am I building alliances? In other words, am I ticking the internal boxes in a situation that is externally kind of pernicious, kind of nasty, kind of not good? And I think if a person is continually trying to feed the beast and propitiate the angry God, you know, appease the angry God with one more offer, yet one more offering each day, it's really hard to get out of that cycle because you can never give it enough offerings. And what you've said earlier about the escalator is that the better the offerings you give it, the more insatiable is appetite. Yeah, yeah. To get off that escalator, you've got to be internally focused. You've got to be inner-directed. That's your only hope. What do you think? Yeah, I think that you've split these kinds of experiences into two different categories here. Yeah. And the first category is one where, guess what? There are really other people in this group, this organization, this team who look at you and go, eh, I don't know. That's real. That's that's a part of life. That happens. How do we deal with those circumstances? And do we allow them to infect us and infect our view of ourselves as underqualified, not belonging, not supposed to be there? Choose your language. Then the second category of experiences 
are really not that way at all. The company's a company. It's situated in a capitalistic framework. It's about production. You know, we got all, okay, great. All of those systemic factors remain problematic, but they kind of are what they are. There's not like a grim corporate culture going on. Other people aren't really evaluating you as like it's inappropriate that you're sitting in that room, whatever it is. They just want you to accomplish the task. And yet, regardless, you feel like an imposter inside of that space. Great distinction. And then maybe there's a third category that I would point to that I actually think is really important, which has to do more with like friendship relationships and being a part of friend groups that start to form. But still, you feel like the other people in that group don't really want you there, even though they do. And I can speak to that with some familiarity, because that was my experience for basically from when I was... 12 to when I was 28. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and so I needed to do some internal work around that. And these are all like different categories of these experience that might all have kind of different answers to them. Something that to me runs across maybe all of them is doing what we can to move away from comparison. Because imposter syndrome is often cued by feelings of negative comparison. And what's kind of cool about it is that it can be comparison to some external ideal that you see. Judy's work is better than my work. Mm-hmm. But it can also be theoretical comparison. I feel like I will never be able to live up to the ideals that my mother had for me. In general, we live in like a very comparison culture. It's very hard to escape a lot of pernicious comparison, but it's also a cue for so many of the painful experiences that we have about ourselves. And of course, also, there's the process of taking in the good as you know, when you do succeed at things or other people do appreciate you or you make a mistake and your boss looks at you and like, you know, you made a mistake here and and it's a little awkward and then 10 minutes later it's gone, it's fine and your boss still thinks you're amazing and gives you the next big thing to do. It's okay, Mm -hmm. right? To really let that in again and again and again and again and again, which really requires this kind of shift I'm talking about from being outer-directed to inner-directed, where you decide, you know, you're really going to help yourself. You're going to be a friend to yourself, including in ways in which you're trying to step out of the machine of feeding the endlessly hungry performance monster and instead helping yourself be more in a mid-range of appropriate standards that other people are living by and comfortable in. And I think that a a part of that could be Finding opportunities for starters to just like talk about these issues authentically with people, if you're able to do so, if you're in a supportive work environment, if you have somebody you can talk to in the workplace, if you're in a friend group, being able to open up about this to some people, maybe being thoughtful about who you you talk about it with so that it feels safe to you, but you just kind of like lay your cards on the table a little bit. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. 
Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. Something that I just think is is lacking in the culture broadly is authentic conversation about struggle, yeah. uh, which tends to move us into more of a feeling of common humanity, as opposed to feeling a real siloing about our emotional experience and the underlying feeling attached to that, that if we were to reveal ourselves, getting back to what you were talking about at the very beginning, Dad, with that that shame and the the thing which should remain hidden, often the, the thing that we start to feel shame about is the fact that we're experiencing these feelings in the first place. Yeah, yeah, shame about shame. <laughs> so then you get into this profound double bind with the whole thing, right? And it's like, I don't know if it's it's a helpful piece of advice to be like, oh, well, revealing that can be really healing because like all of the suffering is tied to the not wanting to reveal it. So just telling somebody, hey, if you were more open about this, maybe you would feel better, may or may not be useful for them. Uh, What do you think about this as a clinician, Dad? Point one, the idea of making friendships and connections with people is really, really important for all, at all kinds of levels, especially if you come in... Feeling like you have an ally. Yeah, yeah. if you come in especially feeling like an outsider. And quick little story about myself. So I did this meditation teacher training, I don't know how long ago, 15 or 20 years ago. It was called the Community Dharma Leader Training. For those of who might be familiar with it, I was in the third round. And there were 90 people in my entering group, and I definitely felt like I didn't belong there. 
there was a set of criteria that I did not meet at all in terms of the quantity of retreats I had taken, the number of nights I'd been on retreat, all these kind of traditional criteria. In any case, I'm sitting around this circle, really feeling like an outsider. A lot of these people knew each other. They had done a lot of retreats with each other. They'd been in trainings together. They spoke the lingo together. I didn't have the lingo down. I didn't have all those traditional Buddhist terms down. Like, ah. And by nature, I tend to be fairly shy. And also, I have a lot of history of feeling like an outsider that Mm -hmm. was getting very reactivated. And then I stumbled on this very simple thing, which is at every single, typically, uh, we would come together for these like week-long retreats five over a two and a half year period. And when we came together, I just made it my business to strike up a conversation with one person at each break. I would connect with a person and then I would connect with the next person, one by one by one. And I kind of worked my way around the circle, essentially. It took a little while, but I just did that step by step. Anyway, it was extremely useful to me. And also that was what was under my control. It was under my control to be human with one person at a time. And then naturally find there were some I particularly connected with and vice versa. I'm thinking about another thing I kind of want to toss in here. I'm thinking about the fundamental structure of being an imposter in that basically you're wearing a costume. The costume gets you into the party, but you're really afraid that the costume is going to be taken away from you, and what's underneath it is going to be revealed. So it's this idea that we're wearing a costume, we're wearing a mask. Well, one of the great antidotes to feeling like an imposter is authenticity. Authentic, real, appropriate interactions with other people, genuine self-disclosure, which sometimes might include acknowledging that you feel a little bit like an imposter and don't belong there. So authenticity, being real. And taking those little risks of the dreaded experience, step by step by step, pushing back the bars of your invisible cage, letting your mask slip in graduated and careful ways, and then taking it in, letting it sink in when it goes okay. I think that that's good advice, and I think that I've given some good advice. But for a lot of the things that we've been saying, they're all scary things. Like oh, yeah. it's a relatively scary thing to be authentic. It's a relatively scary thing to to let the mask slip or to do the pieces of advice to to go up to the people in the group and sit next to each one of them during a different lunch. Like there there can be a yeah. lot of inhibition to that. Yeah. So they're all in the category of these are sensible things a person can do. They can really help with this kind of experience. And yet, you know, they're understandably people have blocks to doing them. They might be simple, but they're not easy. And so, yeah, I guess I'm wondering what you think about that. And if when you've worked with people around these issues, maybe even clinically, what came up as really useful for people? One thing that came up was the idea of very, very small steps Yeah, that kept adding up over time. And that's a real key. And then you're dealing sometimes with people's issues about even taking any step at all. But if people are willing to take small steps that gradually accumulate, it usually gets better in every area, whether mm-hmm. it's your diet or your exercise program or your social life, your relationship. Yeah. You know, small steps sustained over time. Boom. Huge principle. Completely boring. <laughs> in a sense, as a principle, it's not dramatic. It's not a syndrome. I can't make it up. <laughs> you know, I should call it the small step miracle. 
I don't know, you know, or quantum steps. That's it. Quantum. I got to get the word quantum in there. Atomic habits. The book Atomic Habits okay. is basically the uh, the whole principle is 1% better every day, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you Which go. Which is an awesome book. Fantastic book. Yeah. We love that book. Okay, great. Yeah, but it is, it, it, to your point, it's like a good packaging of a simple idea. We're, uh, I'm planning on doing an episode. It, it might take some prep. It might take a little while until this appears. Essentially, I want to do a boring self-help episode. Mm. You know, the, the boring guide to self-improvement. Your grandmother was right all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, whatever it is, we're basically, we talk about, because we talk about so much stuff on the show. All the good advice from your grandmother, in other words, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all the, we have so much good advice. There's, you know, it's all out there. And it's like, wait a second, what can we boil down to like the five or six things that almost anyone can do? But anyways, keep on going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for a second thing, the boring truth that it's okay to just let yourself be yourself and let the world come to you. The second, slightly longer headline related to a, a question a friend of mine once asked me about how it felt for me to be at a workshop setting with these very famous psychologists, teachers, self-help gurus, and so forth, in which we were all teaching. And my response was, well, I've kind of observed over time that the person who is least trying to be impressive in those settings is usually seen as the most impressive one of all. And so I think it's just helpful for people to realize, you know, I can just listen. That's a lot of what I did with these people who sort of scared and intimidated me in that meditation teacher training. Or when I'm in these settings with famous people, I go on workshops and so forth. They're, they're better known than I am many cases, I just ask questions. I relax. I'm the most chill person at the table. And that's a really good sweet spot to rest in. And that's what people can know. Just just be the most chill person there. Be interested in others. <laughs> be the person that other people feel good about being around because you're not vying for status with them. You're not competing. You're You're really quite happy to appreciate what's good about them, not in an obsequious, performative, masquerading. You know, imposture is about masquerading. There's no masquerading. You're relaxed and sincerely heart open, interested in others, which happens to be the stance that will have the lowest likelihood of getting attacked and the best likelihood of being appreciated and welcomed by others. Mm. I wonder if a part of this, in terms of the authenticity piece, because you're right, like, if you are truly authentic, you never have to worry about imposter syndrome because you are what you are, people understand what you are, you know what you are, there's no gap. There's no gap between what you think you are putting out to the world and what you feel like inside. Maybe part of the... <laughs> So I, I don't know if this is provocative or not, but maybe part of like the the healing process around imposter syndrome or these kinds of self-esteem issues in in general involves a degree of being like, yeah, maybe that's just not for me. Mm. Or like, maybe I'm not going to be that person. Yeah. I, I think about myself. I think that my performance on the podcast has improved as I have increasingly stopped trying to be somebody other than what I am. I'm not a psychologist. 
I'm just a guy who's really interested in this stuff. And I, I like having conversations with people and I like them being kind of jovial and good natured and in, in good humor. I can be serious, but I, I would say like 99% of the podcasts we've recorded, I've laughed at some point. Uh, like I just am what I am. Yeah. And, and that's okay. And, and as I've stopped trying to be something other than that, I think I've been able to come forward with, with more helpful advice, frankly, and like useful content and maybe actually like benefit somebody in a meaningful way, which is what we're trying to do here. Right. But that has included a lot of self acceptance and a lot of willingness to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not that other guy over there. And that's okay. And maybe that puts me into a certain bucket that isn't the highest, highest, highest bucket, but that's okay. And, and maybe there's an acceptance process that's involved there around the way you are, which includes some limitations. And, and I don't know what you think about that. Well, it's so fundamental. And in a way, we're, we're talking about letting yourself be yourself and abide in relatedness with everything that is, as it is. And, you know, that sounds maybe like a new age fortune cookie, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does sound a little bit like a new age fortune cookie, but that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it does sound that way. I, we ought to do a show on cliches because cliches mm. become cliches very often because they're profoundly true. There is something about it and... You know, I think about what is this thing about proving yourself and always feeling like you have to prove yourself or strive or keep clawing your way up the slippery pole. I mean, there's a lot about that that kind of overlaps with the sense of being kind of a phony. Like if people really knew, that's a classic one. I have that with people often clinically in a different way. It's not so much about job performance. It's a little bit like if people really knew mm -hmm. X, like, well, what? Well, if people really knew I did this terrible thing, or if people really knew the secret thoughts I have, or, you know, something like that, there's this fear that if people really knew what goes on in my mind, they would be disgusted, or they would throw me out. So there's this fear in general, right, about mm -hmm. proving ourselves and and all the rest of that. And I don't know, this perspective may be just off, and I'm going to throw it in anyway, because partly it's related to me. So here we are. For all kinds of reasons, we're striving, right? And I think there is this fundamental distinction between first art and second art reasons, <laughs> as you are, or inner-directed and outer-directed reasons. And outer-directed reasons imply for me a certain appropriate social skillfulness. But at the end of the day, inner-directedness is the key. Making the offering that you can showing the intrinsic motivations rather than extrinsic motivations, focusing on what's under your control, making them like you is out of your control. What's under your control is being sincere and finding what there is to like in them, for example. Things like that. And then as the ultimate frame of that kind of more interdirected locus of control, inner locus of control and so forth, is perspective about life. And recently... In my occasional nod to culture, I subscribe to the Paris Review. So every quarter, I kind of get a bit of a dive into all kinds of stuff I knew nothing about. <laughs> and I recently stumbled on an interview with a wonderful American poet laureate, Rita Dove, won a Pulitzer, et cetera. And she has written about, among many other things, this violinist that I'd never heard of named George Bridgetower 
who was a contemporary of Beethoven. Beethoven was completely enamored with Bridge Tower's work. And Bridge Tower came from mixed ethnic heritage in, you know, biracial at a minimum. And imagine being a biracial person in London in the 1780s in that kind of context while being also a child prodigy on the violin and wildly mm. talented. And so here's this person I just learned about last night on Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia. <laughs> An extraordinary <laughs> life. Beethoven was blown away by him and really enjoyed him, and he had a whole thing. And you just imagine the, the pressures on him and the historical forces uh, rising in this upper-class setting with every reason to feel like an imposter and all the rest of that. Extraordinary life. Made a great difference. I'd never heard of him. I had never heard of him. And honestly, a century from now, a thousand years from now, no one's going to have heard of me. Sure. <laughs> or you. Yeah. You know? So here we are, striving, striving, striving. We want to have impact. We want to be known. We want to rise in the charts. We want our book to rise in the chart. We want our pod to rise in the chart. Da, 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 da. And man, if you're doing that for externally directed reasons, including that people will know about you 100 years from now, let alone 300 years from now, wow, that is a prescription for suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of this gets a little complicated because a lot of the time our performance is important in terms of maintaining just a certain enjoyment of our life. But I also think that you're really right that it's easy to just keep on raising the stakes on ourselves. When the truth is that for most people, there is quite a bit of freedom in how they hold what they do in the world. Yeah. I was reading just a, a, it was like a message board thread or something recently that was talking about nihilism because somebody said that, you know, I just, I had this bout of nihilism recently and I feel like nothing matters and, and how can I possibly move on in life? And what some commenter said that I thought was quite wise was like, well, nihilism is an experience, but your reaction to it can be all kinds of different things. One reaction to it is, well, it's all meaningless and nothing matters, and that means I shouldn't get out of bed in the morning. A different reaction to it is, wow, it's all meaningless and nothing matters. How great. That means I can find whatever meaning I want in it. All of a sudden, there's freedom, Right. Like, oh, I can find the purpose that I want in this life. Oh, I can lower the stakes on this whole thing. I can just try to have a good time along the way. Maybe it's all okay. And that can be a different kind of justification that people find in their lives. And I think that just kind of has a has a spiritual similarity with what you're saying here in terms yeah. of lowering the stakes or opening out into a broader feeling of of connectedness. A lot of this, I think, gets back to personal history, actually. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has been really helpful for me in my process is going back through my personal history and being like, hey, when did these feelings start to show up for me? Yeah. And what were they tied to? What were the kinds of experiences where I started to feel othered by people? Yeah. And was I actually othered? Or was that just my own psychodrama? That was yeah. going on. Did I other myself by feeling the way that I did in these kinds of groups? And then did it become a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes where I felt like an outsider, so I placed myself on the margins of the group, so other people started to see me as somebody who was on the margins of the group, which was certainly something that really happened in my experience. I'm just kind of reflecting about, at the end of the day, I guess, what's 
what's the locus of motivation? What's mm. the fundamental root of motivation? And wow, if our fundamental root of motivation is about pleasing others or propitiating them, appeasing them, trying to win the approval war every day, oh, oh, oh. I just feel sad yeah. saying it. Mm-hmm. My own personal sadness and mainly sadness for tons of other people. And at the end of the day, what's the line from the song? You can't please everybody, so you got to please yourself. I think that's a beautiful note to kind of wander toward a close here. And this became a much more meta, broad, <laughs> sort of sprawling exploration than I expected it to be. I thought that we would kind of, this would be one of those where we got in there with a lot of how-to. But I think that your diagnosis on this was really accurate, Dad, which is that this is a a broad set of feelings that a person might have that have really complex roots associated with them that can come from a lot of different kinds of places. And just as we can apply a lot of specific tactics, maybe looking at that structure that I named of imposter syndrome and going, okay, where can we intervene? Where can we take in the good? Uh, how do we really experience success here rather than experiencing it as just one more piece of evidence that we're going to be found out in the future? And there's a place for that, and that can be really helpful. But what's underpinning a lot of this is a broader feeling of not worthiness and a larger context where we tend to compare ourselves problematically to others in the world, and we're maybe motivated by ends that not only aren't tremendously useful for us, but are actually fundamentally unattainable. Because there's always going to be another pot of gold, there's always going to be another box to check, there's always going to be a way that your brain finds to justify how you need to do this next thing or how that last thing wasn't really good enough. So the question isn't like, how do I interact with this hamster wheel differently? It's how do I get off the hamster wheel? And I think that was really what you were pointing to throughout this conversation. We are all really vulnerable to feeling like imposters. For one, socially, we do tend to put on a persona. So we, of course, fear what will happen if the persona, the act, slips And that which is revealed catastrophically is the parts of ourselves or the feelings inside ourselves that we really want to keep out of sight. And often we're afraid we really are. So we're vulnerable there. Also, as social primates, we're incredibly vulnerable to fears of exile and fears of not feeling included. And then you think about interpersonally, the rough and tumble with other people who are often distracted, disinterested, cold, dismissive, or frankly, just mean. And you don't feel like you belong in their heart. You don't feel included in their field of awareness. They're not taking you into account. So all these various things do make us naturally really vulnerable to feeling like an imposter. And I'm just suddenly imagining, you know, worldwide imposter acknowledgement day, kind of like in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, everybody (laughs) raises their hand and says, hi, I'm Rick. I feel like an imposter. And then you look around the room and you see hundreds, thousands, Mm -hmm. billions of people raising their hand that day saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, I feel like an imposter too. Like that would be a really good day. And so one thing that's so important about that and I want to tip my hat to you. This is in your notes for this episode. And, you know, just to call it out is the role of others, mentors, role models, allies, people who have a little more authority in the situation who can 
include you and champion you and support you and tell you, you do belong here. You are already good enough. In fact, actually, you're more than good enough already. Those people. And so obviously, to the extent one feels like an imposter, looking for those people around whom it's safe to be authentic, those people who are okay with your mask slipping, who really do take you into account, they really do include you in the field of their own heart and mind, and also who can stand up for you and open doors for you and maybe teach you a little bit of code switching, a little bit of local dialect, local culture, so you can kind of avoid some some pitfalls and, and do fit in a little better. Those people are really important to look for. Flip it around. It's so important to be that person yourself. Mm-hmm. It's so important. I think of one of the most touching gestures of all, of reaching out a hand, beckoning, reaching out that hand of inclusion right, to others. And we can do that in so many ways, not just with that physical gesture, but with a smile or a nod or eye contact or a little bit of, yeah, come on in. We can really, really make an enormous difference to many people if we're willing to be that one for them. Today, we had a really interesting conversation on imposter syndrome that, to be perfectly honest, did not take the shape that I was expecting it to when I started prepping for the episode. And Rick began by talking about Some of his concerns with what he called syndrome creep, which is basically just the tendency to start to pathologize pretty normal human experiences. And imposter syndrome is in some ways an example of this. It's not a diagnosable condition, and it's really mostly referring to feelings of self-doubt and inadequacy brought on by the perception that we're not actually good at doing a thing that we're being asked to do or feeling like we just don't belong in a certain kind of group. One of the key aspects of imposter syndrome is that the person experiences anxiety about their capabilities and, in particular, dreads being exposed as a fraud, despite evidence to the contrary, so it disproportionately affects high-achieving people. The person doesn't experience a feeling of success or worthiness, despite external evidence that they actually are performing at a pretty high level. Most people would evaluate this person as being capable or high-performing, but they just don't feel that way about themselves. And one of the key characteristics of imposter syndrome is that it's despite objective capability. So people who experience imposter syndrome tend to chalk up their achievements to luck or good timing or other kinds of external factors rather than their own abilities. And this can lead to feelings of anxiety and shame and low self-esteem. Imposter syndrome tends to have a structure that accompanies it that goes something like this. In the first step, the person is exposed to a cue. They're assigned a new project or they need to perform some task. Then in the second step, they feel a lot of anxiety, in particular anxiety related to feelings that they will be found out. Third step, momentary relief. The anxiety intensifies until they finally have to do the thing. Wow, they survive doing the thing, so they feel this sensation that's like receiving a stay of execution. Then fourth, they rationalize it. They passed the test not because they were great, but because they got lucky, or maybe somebody else would have found it much easier than they did, or they only survived because they really worked their butt off. And this leads to step five, actually an increase in anxiety, because this was just one more time when they weren't found out. So when they inevitably are, things will be so much worse. 
And Rick really expanded the lens on imposter syndrome while we were having this conversation and related it to normal natural feelings that people have of low self-worth, low self-esteem, and particularly these fears that we all have around shame-driven experiences, which he tied to Eric Erickson and the stages of development that people go through, and how for many people, much of the time, there is this feeling that we are holding a kind of mask up in front of who we are. And if other people actually found out the real person that we were beneath the mask, wow, they would they would hate us or they would push us away, not allow us to participate in the thing we want to do, whatever it is, we would be found out. And one of the keys to the structure of imposter syndrome is that it isn't rational, but we think it is. We think if we just achieve at a high enough level, if we up our performance to a certain standard, if we finally do the thing we have been unable to do, we will stop feeling like an imposter. But that's often not the case. There's always another pot of gold. There's always another thing to pursue. And what Rick emphasized over and over again throughout the conversation is the difference between being externally motivated and internally motivated, or having an external standard of behavior and an internal standard of behavior. Because it's really easy to just never measure up to some phantom external thing in a world that constantly pushes us to be more, achieve more, do more all the time. And what we really need to focus on are our own standards. And part of that can include the relationality that we have with other people, right? The standards that we hold ourselves to as a good person in the world, being inclusive of others, being appreciating of others, and deliberately reaching out to other people, even in circumstances where we might feel like an outsider. We also did a lot of normalizing during this conversation. Any experience related to shame is very normal and incredibly common. And one of the big antidotes to feeling like an imposter is getting a better sense of how other people are going through these experiences as well. We're not very good at having conversations about struggle. These are very vulnerable conversations. They require that we drop that mask, that we come forward as an authentic and whole person, including the parts of us that we're not so happy with or that we don't think are necessarily fit for public consumption. But ironically, that kind of vulnerable self-expression is often what helps people really feel included by others. And we can work to include ourselves internally, right? For example, what are the parts of yourself that you've pushed away? What are the parts of yourself that you've made to feel like an imposter inside of you? And is there a space for reclaiming some of those parts? And becoming more, more honest and authentic and transparent internally about who you really are and about what you have inside that you can bring forward, that you can feel good about, that you can feel in relationship with, right? Not based on some externalized goal or externalized value, but as a way of expressing what you really care about and what really matters to you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you've been listening for a while and you haven't already, we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now on. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review if possible. That really helps us out. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can leave a comment and let me know what you thought about the episode. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.